back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. Folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 116 today, Sacred Mushroom Rituals and Maria Sabina with uh, Tom Lane. Uh, This will be part four. We've done three previous episodes with Tom on different aspects of Sacred Mushroom Rituals and the culture surrounding it. Um, You can check his book. I have the links below to his Amazon uh, page. Uh, Definitely buy his book, um, Sacred Mushroom Rituals. A Search for the Blood of Quetzalcoatl, awesome book, definitely check it out. He also recently received the Gordon Wasson Award uh, for Entheogenic Studies, and um, we're glad to have him back on. You can check us out at uh, uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash Mike and Maurice. For $2 a month, you'll get exclusive content, interviews, and video, and we will probably put one up there with Tom uh, after this episode's over. Also check out our website, Mike and Maurice's MindEscape.com. And we are on all social media platforms. If you're listening on audio, uh, please subscribe to our YouTube and Spotify channels. And um, that's it. What's going on? Hello. What's going on, Tom? Glad to have you back on. Glad to be back on. Uh, right now I'm seeing a double picture. Oh, there I go. There I am. <laughs> yeah, the uh, technology is maybe a tiny bit glitchy, but... Uh, I, I don't know if it has to do with everybody staying at home using Wi-Fi. I don't even know if that matters, but, um, yeah, things have been a little tough to get going today, but I'm glad we got it. And um, today we're going to be talking about Maria Sabina. We've touched on it a little bit, I think, in the first episode we did with you, um, but it, she's such a historical figure in the in this community that uh, I definitely think that we can do a, um, a decent episode on all, you know, from your meeting her and doing rituals to the knowledge that you have of her and um, also her interactions with like Gordon Wasson and, and all those people. So let's, uh, let's get going here. I'm going to pull up the first slide. Okay. Yeah, that's a picture Corey Wasson did of, Maria Sabina, that my friend Maria Maria Calibri uh, talked to him, and he let me use it for his book. And I felt it was very special because I don't like uh, what I call the red, yellow, glowing psychedelic pictures like uh, for rock concerts or 60s sort of events that everybody thinks of as psychedelic and everything because it really doesn't represent the colors like tie-dye or day glow or something like that yeah i don't want to mention particular artists but a lot of people i feel like their experience of drawing this comes out of lsd and it certainly doesn't come out of the sacred mushroom i don't see any of their connections a lot of it seems to come out of even india or other places it doesn't come out of Mesoamerica, and I really felt that this picture expressed uh, Maria Sabina and her power and resonance with the earth and nature. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a beautiful yeah. picture. 
Um, so you make a good point, though. When you see a lot of art, especially recently, a lot of it's been DMT art, and um, you you bring up a good point that a lot of it kind of does look the same. Uh, when I see like thumbnails on YouTube or people posting pictures and saying this is what it looks like, it usually is like a DMT inspired. And I know that there's different artists like uh, Alex Gray and different people and uh, i think all of it's amazing but there some of it does start to bleed into one another but you make a good point from me taking a decent amount of mushrooms in my lifetime i don't think i've ever seen any art that's really truly um inspired by the psilocybin realm or at least i haven't seen anywhere i'm like oh that's it right there you know well i met alex gray briefly when he spoke at the University of Florida, and I've seen a lot of his art and his figures, and they all seem to be sort of electrified. And to me, they're much more like, from what I would think of, an LSD or an LSD experience. And the motifs seem to come from India or from the East. They don't seem to come out of the New World. They seem to basically be these motifs that come from uh like i said an lsd experience mm -hmm. uh some of the ayahuasca experiences and i've taken ayahuasca too i think the art has almost been to some extent contaminated they're not as electric or as flashy psychedelic as uh a lot of the art from what i say the 60s or Alex Gray's, but they seem to be overcrowded with the same sort of motifs and uh, color configurations. And uh, of course, I shouldn't complain about this because I know art is a really hard thing to create. Oh yeah, Alex Gray's an but, amazing artist for sure. I'm, we're not, I think I think what we're mentioning though is just the point that you first brought up, which is that there's not really much art that's depicting. The, the sacred mushroom or the psilocybin realm. Um, I guess my question to you is you've spent a lot of time with indigenous peoples in South America and Mexico and stuff. Do they have their own artists? And if they do, what what is, can you describe maybe some of their art? Well, the main art, and there's uh, an incredible book uh, that I mentioned about the Huicho was the peyote, uh, their art, their like, yarn art and the art of their clothing. You know, uh, was a, really a special, especially the yarn art and the uh, clothing of the Weechel Indians mm. was really a part of their living art. The uh, Maztec Indians in the village, and there's a picture I have of uh, Maria Sabina, I think you've got in there with a lot of the young women, their hoopals and everything, that, which is sort of like the dress they wear, is a very expressive of their art. Mm. Uh and uh, I don't, I haven't yet seen what I've called an artist that really has expressed uh, what I call the world of Quetzalcoatl yet. Okay. Yeah, so uh, that's a good point, too. I, I, I was always, because you've described uh, the millions of diamonds and what you see and what you're experiencing in that moment. I don't think I've ever seen a psychedelic portrait describing uh what you've 
you know, from your experiences and uh, from talking with other people and all that. So, um, maybe, you know, do you know an artist? Maybe you can do some rituals and they can start to portray it for you. Cause I think that that would be important or at least uh, interesting to get out there. Well, yeah, there's one young woman who draw the, who drew this figure. And I think you've had it on a previous com of the deified heart, the heart in flame. Oh yeah. Yeah. I remember that picture. And that was somewhat symbolic to me. Uh, it seems like a lot of times artists are trying to respond or draw something that they think is going to sell or somebody's going to buy. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, the power of the art, of the art of Orozco, for an example, and his murals in Mexico and everything appeal a lot more to me of that power that comes out of the earth than any of the pictures I've seen. Hmm. interesting that's uh let's pull up the uh next picture here this is just a cover of your book again check it out on amazon amazing book um well this is one of the books especially if you want to learn about maria sabina i would highly recommend now i sent you some slides and in the little section of my book about her music her tonal music there was a special chapter on that my son wrote 90 percent of and uh that uh that comes out of this book but there's so much misinformation about her there's it's just unreal and about walt in that time for sure and we do have i do have that uh part written by your son that we'll pull up okay we'll we'll get to that for sure Um, sure here we have a uh, black and white photo of Maria. Um, what is that? She, she's holding the mushrooms. What's that in the other hand? Like a little bowl or something? Is it? Well, part of the ceremony, and you see her daughter Apollonia in the background. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think her name was Maria Apollonia. Okay. But she's burning copal, which is a type of resin from a tree. And sometimes she was passing the mushrooms over certain flowers as part of sanctifying them. This is, uh, you see, these ancient mushroom ceremonies had a process of sanctifying the room and sanctifying the place where you were going to be. And this was a part of a lot of the herbs. And in fact, Quetzalcoatl, part of his journey was to bring these different herbs and plants back for sanctification, but the burning of copal, and sometimes the burning of flowers, was uh, a part of the ceremony. And you see the hoople she's wearing with the uh, bird on the front, and they're on a straw mat, which to me is a very important part of a sacred mushroom ceremony is what's called Napalia motion energy which has to do with a weaving type of motion energy the mesoamericans didn't believe in the great chain of being Mm. or plato's idea of nothing was there unless it was solid their idea was almost what you call instead of vertical like the great chain of being god king his uh knights or rulers the tax collectors the peons at the bottom or whatever 
in spirituality and think they saw it as a type of straight monism of uh, horizontal like for them time had always existed the took had always existed and everything was energy in motion of three types of energy motion uh, and you know, I've talked to a lot of people who've done sacred mushroom ceremonies and they're very deep. I'm talking about doing a tremendous amount of mushrooms or doing it in uh, certain ways. And one of the things when they see in a dog or they see an animal or they see a plant, it's basically they're seeing a type of energy motion. They're seeing, and it's overlaid on it. I don't mean like that's just what they're seeing. They're seeing the dog, but your eyes open wider. Mm-hmm. Your nicotinic membrane on your eyes pull back, and your pupils open wider. And you, and at these certain levels where you pass the blood-brain barrier, you start to see all this energy in motion. We did talk about these metaphysics a little bit too on the last episode we did with you when we went through um, uh, all the um, sacred. You know, what you were just pretty much describing, uh, obviously, we went through all the motifs and the codexes and stuff like that. But um, that picture of Maria Sabina comes from this book by Watson. It's called The Wondrous Mushroom. uh, And uh, it's called Maria Sabina and her mushroom Velada. Now, the incredible thing about this book, only so many were printed. And these pictures in here, I don't know if you could see this. They are not photographs. They're real pictures in there. Your screen's a little bit blurry. We have the slide up still. But, okay. But people, well, people anyway, will check that real out. Pictures. And uh, also, this goes so far back in time that along with this was about five or six records of, of the recording of her Velada. Okay. And Veladas are the... Uh, Part of the well, they're considered uh, a vigil, right? Uh, a sacred mushroom vigil. Usually, they're referred to at night, but there can be daytime veladas. But a velada refers to a, a mushroom vigil. It's it's sort of like a special word uh, in the mushroom culture that, unfortunately, a lot of not a lot of people know how know this word or how to use it. But it was what uh, when you were taking a sacred mushroom and preparing for it, it was called it was a Hmm. And just so people so know, just, uh, oh, go ahead, Maurice. I was going to say, just to clarify, when you're referring to a sacred mushroom, that's that means a mushroom that contains psilocybin, or yes, I'm referring to the Angos sagrados, the sacred mushrooms which contain psilocybin, not other species like amanitas, because none of the Indians I ever met in Mexico used amanitas and in the mountains where I was where they grew all over and my corandero told me that they just weren't the type of mushrooms needed to do what they did that they they knew about them but nobody used them right and just so also people know we we started out I didn't really introduce but like Maria Sabina um she was born I think 1894 and died in uh, 1985 and she performed, I mean, probably thousands and thousands of rituals and famous people had traveled there. I read even like Mick Jagger and some of the Rolling Stones. And so. I don't think that's true. I you, think you don't that's think that's true? That's what I was going to, because I was going to ask. Absolutely. I don't believe it. And let me tell you why. And I published in this book and it's like a papa mole that keeps coming up. Okay. 
Well, it's on. Uh, I, it's it's on Wikipedia. That that's probably why it keeps coming up. Well, yeah, and it's it's uh, people post this. It's not true, and let me tell you why. Number one, the Beatles never ever performed in Mexico. They had one concert scheduled. They never ever performed there. Mm. During this period, the Rolling Stones didn't perform, or any of these people. Now think about this. This is the 1950s with Maria Sabina. Yeah. The 1960s, the early 60s, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles weren't getting famous till after that. Right. Secondly, uh, there's never, ever been a photograph of Jim Morrison, Bob Dylan, any of the Beatles, uh, the Rolling Stones, or anybody ever. There's never been a photograph. And you think about when they went to India with that Maharaji. There were photographers all over them. It's almost impossible for the Beatles or Rolling Stones or Jagger or any of these people to go anywhere and have, have a photograph. And uh, there's some people I know in Walton still today that claim that maybe John Lennon was there, but none of these other people, and there's no photograph of John Lennon there, and I don't believe he was there. Right. And I think there's another reason, too. In the early 70s, especially in the 60s, when they would have possibly gone there, the Army had blocked it off from 67 to 77. You had to sneak your way in. Hmm. But if you talk to people that knew about Walton at that time, the comment they'll make, it was like Neanderthal times. When I was in Mexico, a lot of tourists, or what you'd say the regular tourists from Europe and the United States, were actually freaked out just by regular Mexico. I'm talking about where the tour buses and the lines go right. and that sort of thing. A lot of them would leave and go home because it was such an incredible cultural shock to them. Sure. Now, when you're going out to where Maria Sabina and these people, you're going to a place with no electricity. You're going to a place with no telephone lines, with no paved roads, and until very recently had only been roads that donkeys travel over. Right. It was only two roads in and out. It was extremely difficult to get to where Maria Sabina was. Even, yeah, Hualta in the mountains, That's even now it's not really that easy to get there. I don't think I saw an episode of... Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia where he went there and it took him like a three hour bus ride from like the most local uh, place. So it's not like there's tons of um, uh, modern day, you know, travel. And and, uh, it's it's a very isolated corner closer to Puebla than the city of uh, Oaxaca. And it's like you're going through a desert. And I mean, a real bizarre desert. You would think you're on Mars. The cactus and the plants are nothing like the Sonora Desert up around Mexico and those areas. And I think that's why this culture stayed so isolated and in parts of the Sierra Madres and what in other places because of how isolated and primitive it was. And, uh, you know, if you follow the history here, I think there had been a couple of people to Watla who had sat in a mushroom ceremony but not participated in it okay and richard schultes of harvard the famous ethnobotanist had been there and collected a mushroom but hadn't been in a ceremony and the wassons were writing their book 
Russia Mushrooms in History, which only 512 copies were ever made, and it had photographs in it, and uh, they had finished it. And, and that's why they called, they had spent all their time in Europe. And uh, volume two was when they got this letter from Uni Eunice Pike, which I have most of the letter in my book, 99%. And she talked about the Indians in Walla saying that the uh, sacred mushroom was where Christ's blood fell and that they were poor people and had no doctors, had no medical clinics. You know, there was no electricity there. There was no, you know, these were mud houses or adobe with thatched roofs. And uh, these mushrooms were where Christ's blood fell to heal themselves. And then he made the trip into that area. And it was about two years before he could get to see Maria Sabina. Now, if you look at Maria Sabina and a lot of these customs she's practicing, she was an unbelievable woman, a Sabio. I mean, when she was a little girl, her and her sister used to uh, guard the chickens with sticks to keep the hawks from getting them. Oh. And that's when they first did the sacred mushrooms. And in certain families, she was in a house where there had been curanderos and she had listened and been a part of ceremonies. And uh, she had practiced and been a, a curandero, a sabio, before her, she was married. And then when she was married, she stopped doing it for quite a while. And then her, her husband died. That's her daughter, Apollonia, that you see with her. And after that, there was a situation where her sister was about to die. And everybody thought she was going to die. And she used the sacred mushrooms and went into very, very heavy doses and worked with it and managed to bring her sister back to life and to live. And that's when she started sort of the second time starting to use the sacred mushrooms and healing and, and recognize her calling to be a Savio, that she recognized it was her calling, that she had been shown the hand of creation. See, there was several levels of practicers, and one level is at a lower level, like a brujo or a bruja, something like that, and then you have the curanderas and the curanderos, referring to men and women. Right. And then you have a higher level, which is considered a Sabio or a Sabia, like Maria Sabina, who's been shown the great wisdom that has been shown, taken to heaven and taken to where the saint children are and has learned the sacred wisdom. Now, this type of wisdom came from ceremonies that the uh, Toltecs and the Mayans and the uh, Mesoamericans practiced. They had a whole culture of Tiwatiwakan and in Chitsun East and other places based around this. But this uh, uh, culture had been destroyed by the Spanish. They tried to wipe it out and destroy it. About all that was known, there were several codexes that were saved that we've talked about in earlier videos. Right. But they knew they used cocoa some and they used honey, but 
by the late 50s, there were people denying that there were sacred mushrooms in the mid 50s. They were basically saying, oh, the Spanish were fooled. There were nothing but peyote. And there was several scientists saying that they didn't even exist, even though Mexican scholars knew that this was real and this was true. But then Wasson made this journey with his wife and with Alan Richardson, a photographer, and he had an old-timey tape recording machine. Back then, they didn't have cassettes. You either had right. a reel-to-reel or you had records like, you know, the... Yeah, like uh, old, old analog before... 78 RPM. Yeah. Um, also, I just real quick, I just throw your every time. I don't know if it's like a tapping or something, but you can hear it's picking up on the mic. I just wanted to point that out. I don't know if it's your wobble, okay. your, your mic's wobbling or something. I just wanted to because I want to make sure that I'll lock that in. The audio is as clear as possible. Um, okay. But so, yeah, that that's interesting. I actually was going to ask you that, but you got to it. The the levels of, um, you know, entheogenic, um, I guess shamans if you are corandero candera sabio sabia all those i was curious about that but you you did a good job explaining that now i guess my question would let's go to the next slide but my question would be um when you're how do you get to that level is it somebody that's chosen by the people to be like a sabio or a sabia or is that something that um you just do the practices enough and people start to come to you and you build a reverence like that? Or how does that work? Well, that's a really, really excellent question. And you see a picture here of Marjoria Sabina with Wasson and he's making notes. And uh, here's what I feel is the situation. Uh, you... You cannot uh, choose to be exactly to become a curandero or sabio. Now, to back up a little bit, in certain places in the Sierra Madres del Pacifico, in places there would be one person who would take the mushroom, like a shaman, but they didn't use that word. They used like curandero or curandero or maybe bruja, bruja, mm. if they were sort of a negative personality. Uh, but only that person would take it. There would be sometimes only the sick person would take it with the brujo. Walla was unique, and then all the people in the ceremony would take the mushroom. I mean, it wasn't the only place like that. But it was definitely a place like that, that all the people participating would take the mushroom, not just the person that was sick and not just the uh, curandero or curandero. If you read any of this or you follow any of this, I'm really sorry if you're a psychologist, if you're a therapist, if you're going to Harvard, if you think you're going to be a therapist and get involved in this. Uh, if you read any of this, it's the sacred plant itself that picks who it gives the affinity for. Mm. Now, I'm not saying everybody can't benefit. Every single person can benefit from the sacred mushroom. But it's only a few people that the spirit plant picks that particular person who has an affinity for it and has that capability. And it's like the people recognize them. And part of the way that they recognize them 
is of their spiritual practices. And also, they're usually, if they're a woman, they're usually a midwife. But with Maria Sabina, what was great about her was how many people in her family, like uh, nobody in her family was dying. And she was helping all sorts of other people that were coming to her because of her great wisdom or knowledge. Mm. And usually a path to be a curandero or curandero or a macrame or like in the uh, Wicho, or if you look at the shamans or the medicine men or women, they have a special calling. They're unique. That's not, It's not like you can go to a certain school to learn this and, it, and it's certainly not something you can go to a weekend seminar or take courses to learn that's that's just absolutely hilarious it's uh it's farcical and it's something like that's unique between the spirit of the plant and the plant and the dna now some of the people have like a history within families that go back like Maria Sabina. And uh, I think it's being carried on in her family today. So do you think it is somewhat genetic then? Or do you think, I mean, if her daughter's doing it, the or is it just because of the clout that she carried throughout her life that she was able to pass? No, down? no, no. It's, it's not clout. If you can't do the magic, if you can't perform, it doesn't matter what your cloud or anything was. These are very unique people. It's even among like the Toltecs and the uh, later the Mayans and the Aztecs, they had certain priests right. priests in the religion. But they recognized these unique individuals that were curanderos, or if you want to use the shaman, they were totally unique people. They didn't come up through the a class system. They were chosen out of nature and... I think uh, you could say that within certain families, this tradition has gone down because she heard this as a child. Her daughter Apollonia did, and later her son and her granddaughter. And I think there's people within the families. It's not everybody that has these unique uh, capabilities. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um so yeah, as we see pictured here, that's a picture of Maria Sabina and R. Gordon Wasson. Let's go on to the next one. What's going this on here? This uh, is a picture of one of her grandchildren, and she's preparing mushrooms there in a bowl. I think she's uh, setting aside different ones, and her daughter Apollonia is in the back. And sometimes during the ceremony... Apollonia was also performing too. She would make sounds like birds or a waterfall or rain or different sounds of nature sort of chiming in with her mother. And there were certain times she would almost say, and I hate to use the word shaman, but she would say like shamatized mama, like get it, get it on. Let's go, let's go, let's ride, let's ride, let's, let's do it, let's do it. You know, sort of encouraging her mother. Mm-hmm. But it was mainly a performance of poetry and a musical type of tonal singing by Maria Sabina. And what I mean by that that makes 
some types of inland language and things so hard to understand is the same word can mean different things because it's a tonal language. In other words, uh, depending on how I would speak it or say it, I'm sorry, I can't, can't really do that, but, but depending on the tone and the emphasis on the same word, it could mean something different. Sure, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Let's go to the next one here. I can't read that. It's too small, but uh, it's a same. Uh, well, it basically said there's a world beyond, a world that is uh, away, far away. It's where God lives. And she's basically saying she gets taken to this world and that the sacred mushroom takes her by the hand and takes her to this world where everything is known mm. that she could dive down into the earth to find the illness. She can dive into the nature, into the earth itself. And she's taken uh, above into the heavens above where God lives. And the, uh, as a sacred world where everything is already known and it's a world beyond ours. Mm. Actually, now that you, yeah. I wanted to point something out. When I read that stuff of, that we were talking before about like Mick Jagger or the Beatles or John Lennon or somebody going down there and um, doing these rituals, um, the, there's a part that says that she once, she talked about it and she said that these people um, came here to take these to find God, um, but, you know, these are used to heal the sick or something along those lines. Like these these people think they're coming to find God, but we use this to heal people or something along those lines. Um, almost like um, almost like inferring that, of course, there's God and, of course, this presence there. But um, she um, I don't I don't know how to put this. She just, it, it made it seem like, of course, there's this metaphysical thing going on and these people are searching for it. They should already know about it. Kind of, I guess that's kind of the context. Well, yeah, basically to her and to these people, it was a religious ceremony. This was very much of a Catholic ceremony that had overtones and went back to pre-Columbian. And, uh, you know, even Timothy Leary and the people that went down there didn't, uh, after the story about Maria Sabina, they didn't go to Walton. The closest they got was Cordovaca. They had some mushrooms in Cordovaca, but Timothy, Larry, and or none of those people from Harvard ever went there. And so, did the world find out about Maria Sabina through Gordon Wasson, or, or how how was that? Well, like extent? I said, there was only five hundred twelve books he wrote. Huh. Right. When the Jesus. Life magazine article came out, and, and these books cost a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I think even at that time they were several hundred dollars, and uh, when the Life magazine article came out, he used a fictitious name for her and didn't name the place as Waltla. Okay, that makes but sense. But it started getting around in the early 60s. Some adventurous sort of people made it there. None of these movie stars or anybody like that because there was plenty of people that... Yeah, they're too soft. ...would have taken their photographs. But nevertheless... Uh, the Army and the Federales decided to do something about this, so they actually blocked the two roads off with Army posts and put Federales in town and took all the 
what they call the yippies, the Mexican hippies, and the Europeans and Americans and hustled them out of there. And basically, they were only like farm trucks coming in a wall. Uh, you know, there weren't any buses like we think of or automobiles or trucks like we think of. And they guarded the pass in and out. And you had to be there on business uh, or you could get a pretty heavy fine. Mm. And so there was about a 10-year period from 67 to 1970 where Waltless sort of returned to normal. And you had to hide to get in there. The first time I went in there, I hid in the back of a truck, (laughs) a farm-produced truck that was going there. Because a lot of people, they still carried stuff out by burra or by uh, hand on a basket on the back. Sounds like something that would happen in a movie or something. Yeah. Sounds like a good movie, actually. There was a landslide on the road, and I had to help the truck. I had to get out and help help the truck driver dig stuff away so we could go on. (laughs) He's like, I I didn't know I had a hitchhiker. It came in handy that time. Yeah, well... And Walla was super high in the mountains. It, it was called the Eagle's Nest, it, La Tateja, or something that means the eagle. Hmm. And people remark on, you know, being in Walla and seeing eagles sailing below them and being below them, which is a, a very unique experience to be above. And her house was really, really high near the near the very top. And it's like I said, you're out in a, a very harsh uh, desert very dry desert and all of a sudden you come up out of this mountain range if you could have gotten past the army and you come into this rush rich tropical shangri-la that just exists out there by itself and botanists say there's more different type of psychomagnetic or these plants ethogens in Walter than anywhere else not only were they the mushrooms yeah the san, san the pedro divinorum olakiki yeah, and other types of plants that were that were were used. Is there San Pedro there too? Isn't there? Or am I mistaken? No, San Pedro's in Peru. Okay. San Pedro's in Peru, and Peyote's up only in yeah. north, northern Mexico and the southern American US. Southwest. Yeah, I know because there's like a small patch along where the border is. Where I was watching this thing, they're trying to preserve that area because that's really the only area where they're found in nature although i guess there's a lot of asian people that um buy the uh, the peyote and um they collect them or they cultivate them it's like more of like a show thing they don't take them as entheogens so well there's tons and tons of people that grow them right uh but in the swallow area you also had plants like tobacco that were used and especially used as poultices and used by some curanderos like the tobacco and also, uh, especially for ointments and different types, different types of docturas or brugomancias that were used, uh, also usually typically as an ointment. Yeah, it's interesting. Let me pull up uh, the next pick here. So if you found her, she would help everyone, or did you have to like somehow schedule time with her? Well, in my second trip to Waltla, when I was there, sort of like on special permission, and I had a pass like from the government, 
with a with a Mexican person, and that's when I met my wife there. She was with a botanist that had gotten lost, and somehow I was amazed she had gotten past the army. And when I saw her, I told her, to, you know, to get off the main street. She shouldn't be there where the federales could see her. But that morning, we took about a 30 or 45 minute hike out of the town, way up into the mountains where her house was to talk to her if she would do the ceremony. And through her daughter that spoke some Spanish, she only spoke Maztec and the translation back and forth with her son. Uh, she agreed to that. And uh, Shelly and I, we stayed up in, in the mountains up there and spent the day with her where the others went down to gather stuff and were going to come back at night. Now, what you're seeing here is the very first uh, recording that came out with uh, Russia Mushrooms in History. And it was a record done by Folkway Records called the Mushroom Ceremony of the Maztec Indians of Mexico. And in this, uh, it had the uh, original letter from Eunice Pike to Watson that ended up getting him down there. And uh, this is sort of like uh, a relic of the old times that I've kept this record and everything because now her chants are on YouTube that you can actually, uh, there's a lot of places on YouTube and other things you can li listen to all these recordings. Yeah, you're, you're again, I just want to say your mic's bumping around a little bit, so it's kind of hard to hear part of that, but he's very excited over there. Yeah, no, that's yeah. good. No, but so that was is so is that from a newspaper or that's an album cover? No, that's an album cover. Oh, okay. That's an album cover and you would pull the record out of that. That's the would be the sleeve and inside was the letter from Eunice Pike and the translations which were usually done in the actual Maztec languages there. Then it's translated to Spanish and then to English. Oh, okay. Now, in the first translations in Wasson's book, he was using American missionaries to make this translation from Maztec to Spanish to English. Gotcha. And later, when Estrada did his book about the life of Maria Sabina, especially when the English version was done, which I sent you pictures of. Right. By Henry Munn, he, he knew Maztec, and he got it really a lot more correct and a lot more, like, let's say, indigenous than uh, these missionaries did. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting that... Um... Well, I mean, I guess that makes sense, and it's it's cool that they were doing stuff like that then, too, because, um, I mean, now we have access to everything, but back then that probably was a big deal, um, considering where technology was at and stuff. What's, now, this is... Yeah, go ahead, sir. This is a picture of Maria Sabina. You can see her in the front in 1973, and around her are a lot of the young women of Watla de Jimenez and in the typical clothing that they wore 
which the reason I like this picture is because I feel like the clothing they wore is more symbolic and artistic of the sacred mushrooms than any of the artwork we've talked about before. I feel like their clothing and their, it's, I think it's pronounced hoople, H-U-L-P-I-L. Okay. It's more reflective of their of the of the artwork than anything that uh, any artist have drawn. Yeah, that's an related to sacred mushrooms. In what years were you? Uh, did you do your? Um... This was 1973 when I was there. Okay. Did you take this picture? No, I didn't take this picture. Okay. I was just curious. I think it's a picture very, 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 very few people have ever seen. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I've never seen it anywhere else. Now, this book, Persephone's Quest, Ethogens and the Origins of Religion, was the last book that Gordon Wasson did. Uh, yeah, we're Maria we're... Sabina died in Mexico City in 1985. Right. Uh, I mean, I guess being 96 uh, or close to 100, there's a lot of controversy about when she was born. She was born in the 1800s. Right. And sometime around, a lot of people think about 1884, 85, 86. She wasn't sure. A lot of the Indians don't know exactly when they were born. And, you know, they didn't keep really fantastic records back then. Uh-huh. And a lot of their parents would die or people would die in their home before, you know, they could learn a whole lot. Uh, I met Watson and, and spent time at his home in uh, late 85 when he told me about this book. And this book came out after his uh, death, actually. This is the paperback version in 92. The original one that came out in 1986, Masha Watson sent me a copy of at the request of her father, which was really nice. And it had, uh, it was like the quality of the other book. But this book is an excellent book. And there's also a chapter in it on the disembodied eye, Tiwa Tiwa Khan by Jonathan Ott. But mainly it's uh, about Watson, and there's some about Maria Sabina in there. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I haven't read that one yet, but I'm, I'm definitely going to check it out. Um, I assume it has to do with the Eleusinian Mysteries, uh, which we are actually, I'm working on a, an episode right now, like a slideshow and stuff. Um, it was part of our Ancient Greece series. But yeah, the um, you know the cult of Demeter and... Um, well, the De Demeter was the goddess of spring, and Persephone was her daughter that went in the underworld. Yeah, it was and the fall. Uh, that was the greater mystery. Was the the fall? These one. ceremonies they were a ceremony of life and death, and supposedly Plato's analogy of the cave came from there. Right. And Watson and Ruck and uh, Albert Hoffman basically discovered that if you put the ergot in the water that the lysergic anamides or whatever it was was not was water soluble where the really bad things that caused all the other problems worked hmm. and uh, also in this book I think there's some 
by Wendy Doniger about the Buddha and the Buddha's last meal being sacred mushrooms. Interesting. Yeah, no, I definitely want to check this book out. Um, so let's go to the next one. These are just... Okay, these books here are really uh, fantastic books. If you're going to have any books on Maria Sabina, the one in the middle, in my opinion, is the most important one to get if you want the English version. Sometimes they're a lot cheaper than it's shown right now. The one at the top, Vida de Maria Sabina, The Life of Maria Sabina, La Sabia de los Angos, The Sabia of the Angle, of the, of the Angles, uh, referring to her title. That was by Alvarado Estrada, who spent a lot of time with her. This was after Watson learning about her life. Mm. And then Henry Munn, uh, translated that in Maria Sabina, Her Life and Chance. Uh, and this, this is an incredible book. If anybody's going to have a book on Maria Sabina, this should, if they only had one almost, this would be the book that they would have because Henry Munn was really incredible and uh, really understood the poetic parts in her, both of these books have a large series of her chants in there, even ones that Walt, that Watson wasn't at, translated to Spanish or translated to Spanish and English. Mm. Now, the one at the very bottom is an excellent book, Maria Sabina Selections Poets for the Millennium. And this is about her unique poetic ability and like her uh, even ventriloquy and musical tonal ability as a poet. I think Jerome uh, Rothenberg wrote this book, mm. and it has one chapter in it that's really incredible by Henry Munn called The Uniqueness of Maria Sabina. Like he wrote in its own line, and I mentioned this later in one of the slides, it's called The Mushrooms of Language, and he talks about different curanderos and different curanderos in Watla and how the language springs forth and what's unique to all of them, what's unique to all of the different curanderos and the different uh, curanderos in Watla and how this language springs from them, their use of sacred mushrooms. Right. But in this particular, he also wrote another chapter, The Uniqueness, what made her really unique and exceptional. So these three books right here are worth are really worthwhile to get. Uh, I've gotten the middle one, which I value the most, sometimes for only twenty or thirty dollars. It's hard to find because I don't think it's printed anymore. Okay. So maybe like a bookshop or an obscure bookshop or some sort of a cult bookshop. Well, you can get it from Amazon. There'll be people that'll sell it. And I've loaned a couple of my copies to people I'm still trying to get back. <laughs> gotcha. Well, well, it's good to get the information out there. And I just yeah. want to point out, too, I don't know. What it, again, I don't know if it's your mic. Something's. I, I don't know if it's you tapping against a desk or it's just a noise. I, I'm just trying to because there's going to be people that are just listening to the audio that don't watch it that, you know, I'm just trying to dial in the audio as much as possible. I'm not. Okay, try, yeah, try, I got that. I'm not trying to be a stickler. Yeah, well, 
you know, we had to do it before one time because there was a problem. So oh, yeah. hopefully we don't have to that do was that a again. major problem. That was like a doubling of voice, but I figured that was a technical issue. That was something was selected on this program that we use that shouldn't have been selected. So I figured that out luckily. But yeah, this the technical aspect of doing these shows is always, you know, a pain in the butt, but um, we've slowly over time started to dial it in more and more. So hopefully within the next, you know, few months it'll be seamless or flawless but uh it is what it is it's you know it's it's basically a live conversation and live art and those don't go perfectly either but i just try and do the best i can trying to dial everything in the best that i can uh for the listeners and to get your knowledge and your research and all this the great stuff that you've done out there is crystal clear so people can enjoy it um well uh this picture here as you're seeing Maria Savina, and you, you see the reverence with how she's holding the mushroom as a sacrament. Her daughter Apollonia is beside her and a grandchild. And you see Watson sitting in the chair. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she's preparing and praying with the mushrooms before this ceremony starts. We, we could go to the next picture. Okay. The mystery man. Okay, now you see the woven mat that she's on and the woven basket, which I still have a basket like that today. Uh, and you see the flowers are burning. Right. And she's passing the sacred mushrooms. What would they like burn? Like the Celosti sign essence over the smoke. What would they burn? By the, Was it sage? These were flowers. Oh, like what kind of flowers? Like just, just random flowers? Or? Whatever flowers that were local. Okay. Because the mushrooms were considered the flowers of the blood. Right. And they were considered the saint children. If you go back in Mesoamerica, they grew from the blood that fell from Quetzalcoatl, the male-female oh. serpent from his penis, the blood fell that these grew in the earth, the tail not a coddle, and they were considered the little saint children. And this is a good picture showing her pupil, her dress, and the coloration. Have you ever thought about the connection uh, of like this shedding of blood from the penis, but also maybe even like ancient Egyptian culture? I mean, I know that was so much longer ago than the Quetzalcoatl, uh, but... You know, there's the myth of Osiris and being dismembered and put back together, that kind of a thing. Is there any, have you ever looked into like any sort of connections with other um, ancient civilizations or mythology or anything like that? Well, uh, I have a lot of people on my Facebook site, Sacred Mushroom, a group site, Sacred Mushroom Rituals and ceremonies often post things from Egypt in a post Egyptian things that relate to this. Uh, The interesting thing though was the Egyptians, the Romans, the Tibetans, the Greek, the pagan gods of Europe and the gods of uh, Asia had nothing to do with the metaphysics of the gods of Mesoamerica, right? We we did describe These, that, but I was just because yeah. there are, but there are some because there's other things though. Like I mentioned last time, like how Quetzalcoatl is also associated um, with Viracocha, um, and also associated, you know, the Contiki. Uh, you know, those are considered to be the same entity as this like original um, sun god, if you will. Um, but 
I mean, I, that was that's pre-Columbian stuff that kind of bled into. Well, yeah, that's some of that stuff goes back so far in time, and so much has been erased by time, and maybe things will be dug up and found later. You know, I just right. a I lot was, of things even after Wasson was there in '61 were dug up and found about the sacred mushrooms and. Uh, I don't. I'm not really knowledgeable in that area. I was just. Uh, I, have I was just curious. Yeah. No. I, I, yeah. I have respect, but I don't want to make a comment when. Uh, there was a lot of like Horus, uh, you know, healing the Queen of Sheba with doctoral flowers. I've seen that, and I've seen a lot of symbolic things of mushrooms, but I really don't know much about the Egyptian culture in regards to that. Gotcha. Yeah, they have a lot of blue lotus, which has uh, active ingredient aporphine in it. So they were definitely using psychedelics in ancient Egypt. Obviously, that area has got uh, Peganum, uh, Harmala, and definitely a lot of acacia and other um, DMT, you know, phalaris grass and all that stuff. So, again, I was just curious. I know I, you've, I think you might have mentioned before you haven't looked too much into it. You're really deep into the Mesoamerican stuff, which I appreciate. Well, you know, the bizarre thing, and I don't want to spend time on this because we'll diverge, but in sure. a lot of the mummies that were inspected, they found cocaine and tobacco, and that just blew people's minds because there was no knowledge of any trade between the two worlds. So there's obviously something that was going on and if you go to YouTube and look up cocaine, tobacco, mummies, there's all sorts of videos on it. And like I said, I'd like to stop that right here. But obviously, there was some connection between those world or something sure. going on. And I think we talked about last time, too, Thor hired all and him proving that you can you know, make a raft out of local stuff and float all the way from whether it's Chile to Easter Island or the Micronesian islands or whatever the case may be. So people were able to get around. We, we do know that, but what actually was happening is, is a different story, but yeah, we'll leave it there and we'll move on to the, uh, the next thing here. And so you can see, uh, she's preparing the mushrooms there and cleaning them and preparing them. And that's her family with her. And of course, the man in the picture with his, his feet, you see our Gordon Watson. Mm -hmm. We can go Do you to ever see his face? Or yeah, is this guy yeah, just he, a... he was in a picture oh, earlier. Oh yeah, he's, he's, he's oh, okay. in a lot of pictures. They're chopping him out. I and, just, uh, he's like the mystery man. And uh, here you see with... Uh, one of her grandchildren and she's preparing the mushrooms in a bowl here and you can see the devotion of what she has and what she's doing and remember this is a woman that also spent time farming when I was there she didn't never wore any shoes it was her bare feet all the time let's go ahead to the next picture okay yeah they say it's a good thing to have your bare feet touching the earth I don't know if that that's why she was doing it, but the connection between the magnetic field and your actual feet, because, you know, in American society, do you ever even walk around bare, barefoot? Maybe once in a while, you know, once in a while in the summertime, but... Well, some of the ancient uh, stellas of uh, Xochimilco and everything, they show the bare feet on mats and part of the ascension and, uh, and descending of the initiate in these ceremonies now in this particular picture you can see maria sabina 
where she's very relevantly handing a mushroom to R. Gordon Wasson to take a look at and examine with her grandchild there, you know, looking out of the corner of his eye at Wasson and some of her family in the background. Let's go ahead to the next picture. Okey-dokey. Now you see R. Gordon Wasson and you're seeing a better picture of him as she's sitting in part of the preparation and playing to the Nina de Atocha, which is a very interesting saint related to the Sun Prince. And you also picture of uh, Christ where John the Baptist and the Holy Dove is ascending onto Christ. And that's John the Baptist. The Nina de Atocha was associated with the Sun Prince, the firstborn, who became a Catholic icon, and it's the only one that went from the old world back to the new world, is the Nina de Atocha was transformed from the Sun Prince, and he was the firstborn that ate the sacred mushroom and also referred to as the plunging youth, but he helped people who are in need or in trouble. And uh, he's often shown with one shoe missing and a, a, uh, his clothes a little dirty from going out to helping the poor people and going out. But in this altar, you can see this is a very uh, Catholic ceremony. Now, with us, when we were taking the ceremony at night, it was just unbelievable. The wind and the rain. During the day, when I was sitting in the house with her, her daughter, Apollonia, and Maria made us, myself and Shelly, chocolate, uh, cocoa, cacao, a chocolate drink that we drank. And we drank that during the day, and we had just a little bit to eat with her, And but it was like... The windows in the house weren't any windows. They were just open. And sometimes cloud would come through. And I remember one time where a lightning bolt came in one window and went out the other. Damn. And she just sat there totally in presence. It doesn't even bother her at all, like nothing had happened. Uh, of course, there were two chickens in the house, and they got excited and hopped up on the table. They were coming through the opening. And uh, I have a question. So I, we might have talked about this before. I don't remember. Uh, but do you, what's the reasoning behind the um, the conflation between the sacred mushroom rituals and Christianity or Catholicism? Is it from the days of the um, the Catholic Church and the um, uh, the missionaries and all that stuff, and then just you know, coming in and the Spaniards or is, does it have to do with them as in the people like Maria Sabina and the uh, Curanderos and Curanderos has something they adopted on their own or was it something that they were forced into? Meaning did they have their own culture prior to Western civilization? Well, well, absolutely. And a lot of this had to do with Catholic concepts like the Eucharist. Okay. That's considered the flesh of Christ. Right. That's considered the flesh of the Christian God Christ. And if you're a real Catholic, you're supposed to believe in transubstantiation, that when you take the wine, you're drinking his blood. And when you 
take the wafer through transubstantiation, it's actually becoming the flesh of Christ like at the last summer. So when the Indians referred to Teonon Connell as the flesh of gods and the Catholics were telling them about this, of course, this was clicking with them. Oh, this makes sense because they were actually practicing baptism. Mm. They had lots of baptism. They believed in the, in the concept of sin. Though with the mushroom, it's a little bit different thing, but they were unbelievably religious people in practicing baptism. And we've gone into how a lot of this relates to Quetzalcoatl, but especially the God, C-O-A-T-L-I-Q-U-E, I'm trying to pronounce her name, Kolakik. Okay. Uh, there's all sorts of stories about how the Yucatan Times, for an example, or sometimes she's called Tonazan, uh, transfigured herself to become the Virgin of Guadalupe. If you look at the Virgin of Guadalupe, the stars around her, I think it's the 13 stars, were the same as Kolakik. Mm-hmm. Uh, her color, her particular color, like cyan, is the same. Uh, it's almost everything is identical that the transference of this God to uh, a Catholic God. And when the Campesino found this blanket with everything on it, which was considered a miracle, the Virgin of Guadalupe is most most an exact identical transformation into this maybe more loving Christian Virgin of Guadalupe, which is important in Mexico in a lot of ways is, uh, you know, the Christ is now, Mary is not worshipped like Christ, but she's uh, reverenced as the mother and often prayed to to help. There's another one a lot of people don't know about. There's a cave, and it's called Chalma. It's called the Black Christ of Chalma, supposedly way, 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 way back in this cave. There was a vicious Aztec war guard that was carved way in the back of this cave. Hmm. And something happened that transformed that Aztec war god into the black Christ. And uh, some missionaries or somebody uh, took that out and uh, uh, that that became uh, uh, black Christ of Chalma. They went back and cut it loose and brought it into the church, and it became the black. uh, But the basic customs of the mushrooms and everything were driven underground. People that were practicing that in the main central valley of Mexico were being persecuted. Only in the isolated mountains were these traditions being carried on. And if you're a poor person, and maybe there's a Catholic missionary there, and he tells you, about the blood of Christ, and uh, it doesn't matter so much what the name is, right? Or the God, because you realize out of these forces, the Mesoamericans didn't believe in gods like we did, especially the higher ups or uh, the priest or priest of Tollocks and the followers of Quetzalcoatl. They considered everything energy and motion. They just gave figures to these gods to be able to talk about them and talk about who they were. 
And talk because about like, talk instance, about them openly, right? Because you're saying they were persecuted. So implementing these gods into these rituals probably gave them the freedom to continue what they were doing beforehand, right? Right. But in a lot of these churches and places, the Spanish not speaking the language really didn't know what they were doing. Like Wasson in his book, The Wondrous Mushroom, has these churches that the Spanish thought, oh, this is fantastic. They know all about angels and cherubs, and they, they, they understand what we're talking about. And it was actually the whole story of the plunging youth, the story of the little saints. And you look up there at the ceiling, and the mushrooms are, uh, the Indians recreated the legend of the sun prince and the youth. And, and some of these uh, churches, the columns outside, like the columns have morning glory vines all around them mm-hmm. going up the columns. And uh, this was, you know, when people don't have any doctors, when they don't have any medical clinics, but they have something that really works because there's a parallel world of these mushrooms and people that take these mushrooms can go into these parallel world and meet these people and the name is not important. Well, a name is just a creation of man. Like we're, we've created a name. Even let's say there is a creator, or there is some divine force, or whatever the case may be. If that's the case, whatever we call them doesn't matter anyways, because it's just something that we've created. So yeah, I like the I like the hand of creation, but I believe in like Matthew seventeen two and in Mark and and also the legends of Quetzalcoatl that these figures can appear as white light, as pure white light, mm. that, that the appearance. And this is this is in a, a world that's parallel to ours and existing beside our world for healing. Sure. Let's go on to the next one here. Okay, so this is the part written by your son, um, Joseph Lane. Yeah. Right. Uh, uh, he actually wrote part of this for a... College. Okay. And it's, uh, it's called The Musical Rhythmic Tonal uh, Poetry of Maria Sabina. And this is in your book? Yeah, it's a chapter from my book. And since it was a short chapter, I'll put this here. And this is about the her tonal uh, poetic chants. They're like chants that were songs and hymns at the same time and prayers to and from the earth, and uh, there's like a resonance that you can hear with the earth that when she's in this ceremony, part of what she did was to learn your name. That was one of the most important things. She learned your name, and she practiced with you till she could say it exactly like you said it. So the last time she said it to you, it sounded totally perfect, and later in the ceremony, you might hear your name and it came from somewhere in the room, uh, and it sounded identical, like she was taking your name to God. And then she rubbed on her elbows uh, dirt from the floor to help us connect to the earth. And on my arm and some of the others from the wrist here, right up to the elbows, she rubbed it like a tobacco poultice. That's sort of to loosen your etheric. Mm-hmm. to help you be able to travel what I call astral travel or whatever. But this pure pure musical quality is just uh, really beautiful. And, and 
she was very insistent that we all eat the mushrooms at the same time. There was very, you know, she, she and her daughter made sure we held up and we all ate the mushrooms together because we were going on this viaje, this melada together. And uh, how many? Go ahead to the. How many rituals have you done with? Her? Like, how many did you do? With her, only one. Okay. And I talked about the next day when we were leaving that morning, uh, sometime before noon, she gave me these uh, slorosha, which are sort of like truffles. And her daughter, Apollonia, said she'd give it, go back one. Okay, sorry. Her, yeah, her daughter had given them to me to, uh, and uh, Shelly, so that we could uh, go back to the, uh, through the army and not be seen. And I'd never seen anything like this before, even known about it. And uh, her daughter said she could find these glowing underneath the earth. This is the power of lightning. And the lightning from the mushrooms was stored in there, and she could actually find them where they were underneath the earth. Now, this is one of the reasons why I say I don't trust hardly 90% of the things that are said about Maria Sabina and what she said. Because she only knew Maztec. She didn't speak a word of Spanish. Hmm. Yeah, I mean... The that, that. Translators and everybody, like Estrada says here, have little understanding of the sacred language of the mushroom, that which has its own language. It springs forward. It comes out of you without your thinking about what you're going to say or process. It just literally comes out. Uh... When she was asked to explain these words or what came out, she would just say that is the mushroom, language of the mushroom, and it came down through many... Little, uh, we're getting a little bit of feedback on your end right now. Hold on a second here. Okay. Let me see here. All right, that's... Sorry, continue. But it's a very musical, poetic, with elements of ventriloquism, and I met other people and Waltlow that could do ventriloquy. Uh, but this is this is an oral tradition that's been passed down. I mean, not from any books or anything that was written. They were passed down from long in the past, uh, orally, to their ancestors. Let's go ahead to the next one. Which we know Socrates was a fan of that style of thinking, he thought you lost by writing things down and preserving them that way. He was a big fan of the oral uh, traditions. That's why, obviously, Plato wrote most of Socrates' teachings down. Well, of course, and, you know, that's like going to a musical event. And I've been with Indians before that had never, ever heard a recording or heard a recording for the very first time at, of, mm -hmm. of what they had sung and you can imagine going to see Beethoven or going to see a Mozart, and there's no recordings, that this is going to be, if you're not there when it's played, imagine going to a rock concert knowing you couldn't buy a record. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, and so anyway, these first two titles here, The Uniqueness of Maria Sabina, that's in a Clades book. It's also online if you if you do his name, and it's just an incredible uh very short to read, maybe about 20 minutes, 
The Mushrooms of Language by Henry Munn is incredible, too. It describes all the other Caranderas and what's common to all of them. As I mentioned here, too, her poems and chants are on YouTube. The original recordings uh, by Wasson uh, from the Mushroom Ceremony of the Aztec Indians of Mexico and Maria Sabina's poems and chants are available on YouTube. And the two main books he wrote about her that have the Spanish to English translations from the Aztec were Russian Mushrooms in History and Maria Sabina and her Mushroom Velada. And also I wrote down there that I recommend her uh, Life and Chants in Spanish by Estrada, the, again, the uh, English translation, mm. which I think uh, a lot of people think Henry Munn did a better job of, of going from the Mazatec, the Spanish to English, than the people that Watson had uh, translating, which took a, a lot of work. Oh, and sure. you felt like when you were in their ceremony with her, you could feel your body just resonating with the earth, almost like a shaking of the body, a type of resonance. And then you could feel the power. And at some point, and I think it was because of the tobacco on the arms, that you felt like you were astral traveling or some type of holographic part of your body had left and you were going, you know, different places. And I write about this in my book, and also there's about four or five pages from a friend of mine by the name of David who wrote his experiences about a few days or a week after he had had the experience uh, with Maria Sabina. Mm. So w did she give off a presence too, like a calming presence? So like you mentioned that the lightning going through, you know, hitting right outside the window and shooting across and she just sat there did her like stoicism or that uh very um kind of laid back persona did that was did that you think that helped at keeping people at peace going through this intense psychedelic uh journey or uh do you think that was just um who she was well absolutely uh it helped in her presence and she had been involved in so many healing ceremonies and so many ceremonies of life and death. And in some of these ceremonies, you know, the people weren't going to be healed, but they found out sort of what their fate was going to be and that they, they were going to die, but they were able to accept their fate. Mm -hmm. Now, just like the Weechold Indians, and a lot of the Indians I saw that didn't have any shoes. When I was down there, a lot of people didn't have any shoes that traveled through the mountains. Some of them had them uh, out of pieces of leather or a common one I got in the market was for an automobile tire to be cut up. And it would be like glued and both stitched uh, to make a shoe which was pretty incredible. You know, you'd have 30,000 miles left on the tread or something. Right, right. Yeah, that's But her feet, 
and the color of the earth. That just was just to blow me away, and I was amazed by it was like her feet grew out of the earth, and the color of her skin was the same as the earth, the same as the other Indians in the uh, almost like she was El Pacifico a... in the in the Sierra Madres del Pacifico, and especially the Weechold Indians. A lot of the Weechold Indians. And the one thing about a lot of these Indians, they don't talk a lot. They don't have a lot of wasted language. There's not a lot of chit-chat. Sure. Uh, and, you know, these people are farming and, and struggling. If you read about her life, just to get food, well, she talks about constantly when she was a child, she was hungry. She and her sister were hungry all the time. Yeah. And, and you, you can't appreciate that when you have grocery stores, uh, maybe you can appreciate it some if you've been backpacking and you've run out of food and you still have to do something that's strenuous and you just hope you can get something to eat or you look for something in the woods to find to eat to uh, sustain you and or it's a bad harvest. But she had a very, very difficult, hard life in the farming conditions that she lived in, which was typical of a lot of the people then. And the mushrooms that they were using, um, I, we've talked about it before. It was psilocybe. Uh, so I think you mentioned that there was a couple different kinds used. There's a psilocybe. Well, there was a Mexicana, a carolescence. Yeah. Which were, uh, called the Durumbis. Right. And they were very common. And the ones that she seemed to prefer, there were also the pajaritos, the little birds. And there were some birds that had a hollow bone, and they made some necklaces out of them. I wish I still had that necklace, but uh, they were the smaller ones. And then, and I heard that she didn't like it. Like I said, I don't trust... 50% of what people say that Maria Sabina said, right. except perhaps Wasson when he was there. And But these were the ones, the Psilocybe cabensis that grew in cow manure, and these had to come later with the Spanish. Mm -hmm. Somehow they managed to get cattle up there because... And the, uh, the Psilocybe crucilins, those grow in like sugarcane fields, right? They don't grow... Undone. Well, they grow in bagasse, which is the waste of sugar cane, and they also grow on landslides. That's why they got the name Durumbis, the Psilocybe zapatocorum, which I feel, I feel are the most powerful mushrooms of all. They grow on landslides, and a lot of time after storms or hurricanes or that come in from the Atlantic and cause slides and areas of the earth to slide, that's where the Durumbis grow, and they're also... This, the cyanescence and stuff, a lot of it was known to grow on waste from sugarcane mills or where sugarcane had been mm. harvested. And there's a lot that just grow out in nature, you know, in the fields. And, of course, the Slosby Kabinskis that grows in cow manure, it'll sometimes grow in horse manure, uh, all around the world in oxen, I hear it's in giraffe, elephant poop, mm -hmm. you know, what have you. It seems to be everywhere in the tropics from uh, Capricorn to Cancer, anywhere there's a tropical or subtropical climate, these type of mushrooms grow. And 
people are fighting more and more all the time because uh, the spores can travel in the air all over the all over the world once oh, they get up in the clouds. You know, I've heard of a lot of people during a hurricane preparing a papal or something and going out and trying to seed the earth with psilocybe <laughs> <laughs> mushrooms by having their pile or, or whatever their preparation taken up and blown into sure the atmosphere. I mean, I don't see why that wouldn't be the case. I mean, that makes sense to me. We also mentioned yeah. the coronavirus, and there was people found in the United States to have it way before this stuff came from China, that they had no idea where it came from. Maybe it just blew in the air, you know? Could be. I mean, they're saying now, I read something today, that it lives on non-permeable surfaces for up to nine days. So, I mean, this thing's weird. Who knows? We'll just, everybody stay, sa stay safe, stay inside, drink a lot of water. Yeah, we all get... Uh, certain things out of Egypt when they have dust storms in the Sahara. It ends up coming here to Florida. Yeah. Actually, you should watch this uh, wow. One Strange Rock. It's a documentary, and they talk about how the diatons, which are these little organisms, they get blown all the way from uh, the middle. It's like this. Basically, it shows our how the Earth's almost like its own organ uh, organism, and the sediment from the Sahara gets blown all the way into the Amazon, and that's the, what the Am Amazon needs that. Um, and it's just this whole like process and cycle that keeps happening. So Did you talk about diatomaceous Earth. Uh, yeah, I think so. Is it they're like little living particles or something like that? Well, they're. They're the little fossils from things that lived. It's right, used in right. swimming pool. Uh, yeah, that's what it is. Filters is supposedly the best filter there is. Yeah, mm. yeah. So those get blown. They can you can see them from space apparently too, or something like that. Uh, but yeah, check out anybody that's interested in that. Check out One Strange Rock. I think it's on Netflix, if I'm not mistaken. But narrated by Will Smith. Is this? Um, is this slide, you want me to leave this one up, or do you want me to go no, to the next one? Yeah, uh, th that's all I want to say. Go go to the next one now. Okay. Oh, yeah, okay. Now, this is Maria Sabina taken in total darkness at night with a special camera by Alan Richardson, and she could see Apollonia, and she's imploring the saints, and she's imploring... Uh, to come down and to help. And she's using her energy motion powers to make this connection. Mm. Yeah, let's go to the powerful next picture. One. Yeah, this is again just showing her when she's looking at the mushrooms and this may be in the part of the ceremony. Usually these mushrooms were presented on a banana leaf or tobacco leaf or one of my friends got it on an extremely old newspaper mm. uh, of course she couldn't read or anything but she used it to wrap the mushrooms in and uh, these were eaten and you always ate all that you had all that you were given mm -hmm. and then she would start the ceremony and you sort of see the artistic uh, emblems on her the front of her clothing there her dress right all right let's go to 
Oh, that's just another uh, page from your your book regarding it. Um, yeah, but I think that that's um, that's all we got as far as pictures go. But what I want to do is let's um, let's wrap this feed up, and then I want to do like, again a, a little segment on our Patreon where you describe, you just walk us through um, an actual ritual and what what exactly happens and stuff like that. But yeah, the uh, only thing I'd like to wrap this slide up is by saying. You know, a lot of people are upset with Wasson, and there's a lot of people that put out a lot of baloney about him and stuff that isn't true, and I don't need to name names. And a lot of people are sort of upset with Maria Sabina and the fact that this knowledge from the was given to modern man, but I don't think there could have been two more perfect individuals to do this. At some time, this was going to happen. This was sort of like saying, oh, the Columbian Exchange was never going to happen. Well, if it wasn't Christopher Columbus. So you're saying there's people that are mad so- that, that Wasson went down there and, and did this whole thing where, you know, he showed the world what was going on and these rituals and the mushrooms. And he brought the spores back and brought them to uh, Albert Hoffman and he synthesized psilocin and all that. Are you saying is that what people are mad about? Well, yeah, that he messed with this ancient Indian tradition. And it resulted in a lot of uh, entitled or onerous American and European and even Mexican hippies, or as they call them, yippies, invading Walla and all the problems it caused the people. It resulted in some people getting mad and burning her house down. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, and they burned her house down and... uh, a lot of people didn't like the fact that now they had all these people interrupting this culture because they didn't come there. You know, when I came there, I was trying to enter into the culture to be involved with the farming and do things and enter into the culture. They were not there. They were there just like they're going to a resort to do yeah. mushrooms or something and totally disregarding the, the cultural taboos of open, uh, what you'd say, public displays of affection and other things that the free love society sort of brought about. Right. And there was people that thought, well, Wasson shouldn't have done this and that, but I look at it like this. This sacred knowledge was needed in this world today. We got a really sick society with people that can no longer connect with nature. Mm -hmm. We're becoming this type of digital technical sort of person and they're showing that the brains of millennials are even different. People born after 95 and 97 are different, that their brains are on different type of brainways. They have very different attention spans. And we've got, oh, a, lot of, we got a lot of mental health issues, too. And I, I don't think that I think there's depression prob- is yeah. unbelievable. The suicide rates are unbelievable. The opioid rates are unbelievable. Because we're no longer connected like a dwelling person to the earth, and we're no longer connected. We've become a technical silicon sort of man, and the technology is controlling us rather than us controlling the technology. Oh, I don't. And, I don't describe. I don't uh, dispute that at all. I hundred percent. But agree. if you take the sacred mushrooms during the day in a garden or out in nature in a wilderness. 
and you take these, especially during, if there's a light rain or sunshine, and you're away from the technical world, there's no power lines, there's no noise, and, and you've fasted for a day and you've prepared for this, you'll see the beings in this sacred world. That You'll see the animism. You'll be able to communicate with plants and with trees and reconnect to this nature. This is not stepping outside the box. You're going to destroy the box. Mm-hmm. You've been put in this box from the time of your birth. And of course, you aren't in the box Maria Sabina is, but you're not even in the type of box I came out of where I didn't even see a TV till I was 10 years old. But you've been willed into existence. The hand of creation has willed your physical body into existence. And your souls come into this body for a short time. And if we don't make this connection back to nature, and with these healing powers, both physically and mentally, uh, I believe the machines and robots are going to take over. And uh, yeah. we're, we're not going to be humans anymore. Not humans like what I call and know as humans and human beings. We're going to become a machine-like type of person. And that's why I'm grateful for our Gordon Wasson and Maria Sabina. I would have never, I didn't know about them when I was in Mexico, but later after my experiences and drilling down into this, I learned about this and I'm very grateful for what our Gordon Wasson did and what Schultes did and what Albert Hoffman did and all these people that played a role because it comes from a unique perspective. I really don't have much appreciation for almost anything that was written after the 90s or especially in the last, uh, say, 30 years because, it, it, to me, it comes out of a more narcissistic sort of self mm-hmm. point that everything's oh, I, about I, me I, and what I experienced rather than learning from these people. I 100% agree, and I've read a lot of books on the subject and a lot of books, uh, current books, as you mentioned, post-90s, and you're right. There is like a self-indulgent factor, and while some people might have good intentions or they might think that they have good intentions, um, a lot of these authors are still subject to the same cognitive confirmation, all these biases that we deal with as human beings every day. Um, so maybe they're not even aware of that aspect of it is my opinion. And the, some, some of them that are, maybe they're just assholes. I, I don't know, but, um, there is a self important factor to that, but, um, that's a whole different concept too, or conversation. Cause we can talk all day. And even, even some of the people I really like, like Terrence McKenna, and I think he's brilliant. Some of you said the idea of taking this in solid darkness, a heavy dosage and the only way to do it is in my opinion, a terrible thing because. Well, I don't think it's the only way to do it, but I've had some pretty profound experiences doing that. And I'll just point out too, I don't have access to, I don't, I can't just run down to Mexico or can't just run down to South America to participate in these things. So I think sometimes you just have to make do with what you have. Um, And I'm not arguing that the rituals aren't important and that we can't do that, but I would just only point out that maybe that's what some people have access to at this point. Well, two things. One, part of the ritual and everything is this is a sacrament. There's a huge difference if you consider something a sacrament, but just versus it's a drug or a medicine. And also, it's starting to be legal in a lot of states now. And I'm not going to give any addresses out on the... uh, 
Yeah, don't, this, but there's yeah, places you can order spores from. Yeah. That are legal because spores are not illegal because they don't contain any psilocybin, just like marijuana seeds don't contain any THC. So you can mm-hmm. order these spores, and then all you have to have is rice water and uh, right. But I'm saying vermiculite. Aside, aside from just the actual mushroom or psilocybin aspect of it, just being able to be around, let's say, a curandero or a curandera or a sabio or a sabia, I, that doesn't exist no, anywhere near me. So, I mean, it would have to be, we'd have to come meet up with you and you'd have to do it or something like that because, again, there's... Well, no, I, I would disagree with that a little bit. There's people I know, like I think Shauna Holm. Okay. And it would be great to have her on sometime. Okay. Sure. We're always over. And there's... And, you know, I'll talk to... Maybe I'll talk to her about doing a video with her and I've actually done one video with her, but there's other people that I feel like have these uh, properties, like Michael Smith, I know. There's a lot of people who have this potential or have this ability, and a lot of this you don't need a corridor or everything because the mushroom will teach you. Let The, the mushroom is the teacher. Okay. Your body will teach you. Your heart and living body will teach you. It's like... Part of the job of the curandero or a person like with myself is to make people realize they should be overjoyed, that they should rejoice that they're going to do this, to not feel any intensity or anything bad because all they have to do is feel with their body. If they can feel love, they can change any negative monster or anything into something positive, and they should be overjoyed, like the picture of uh, Sochapilli in front of Quetzalcoatl. The joy in his life and rejoice that you're going to be able to escape this madness and go to the real world where real life exists and where all these people are really your friends. Oh, I mean, again, I would love to participate in one of these. I think it would be a tremendous experience. Um, and hopefully I'll be able to do that at some point, you know. Uh, but my only point was this, is that sometimes you just have to go with what you've got. And you, I think you can approach taking these substances entheogens and and it's the perception of them so if you're taking them as a sacrament and you're understanding that and you have reverence for them and you're just going to allow them to teach you in that moment when i say sit in silence all i mean is you're still approaching it the same way you're just sitting in darkness taking a journey you know through yourself Well, there's several different ways to take it and um I don't particularly care for the psychiatric method of lying on a couch and listening to Mozart with. Uh, I'm not talking about that either. I'm talking about like a personal experience. I'm not talking about. Right, right. The personal experience. And I have no problem with some people wanting to do it with somebody else or a guide the first time. I'm, I'm a type of person, I don't care whether I was installing a solar system hmm. or uh, doing something like that mechanical. I always wanted somebody that knew what they were doing the first time to be with me. I wanted to learn from watching and experiencing with another person. And I think it's sort of like when you're with somebody that has experience, I call them like followers of Quetzalcoatl or Hierophants or Sacred Mushroom Sages or Guides. And the real people that are really good, and I'm going to list this some of them on my website, uh, Solar Wolf dot org not dot com 
always, and it's like my son in the Amazon, when he takes people to Manaus out for ayahuasca or sacred mushrooms, if they've never done this before, it should be one-on-one. Mm. There, You should never, this whole thing of a group of people and one person leading it, and none of these people, there's too much of uh, the karmic. I don't even like to do mushrooms with more than, you know, four or five people, but I want to make sure they're always experienced. Sometimes I've had somebody come to me that wanted to do the mushroom and they brought somebody who'd never done that, done it before. And I generally don't like that. Uh, now, if they've done it and, you know, people, I can prepare for that, but I think any time anybody's doing it for their first time, it should be one-on-one if, if they feel like they they need somebody, uh, you sure. can do it to, uh, yourself as long as you have respect and reverence. I think everything will work out fine. Just make sure you have intentions that you know why you're doing it and you make discernment. Just don't be doing it to be doing it. And I mean, uh, I'm not going to lie. I mean, when I was younger, we did just do it to do it. But that's kind of what drew me in to the more. OK, so, I mean, I, I don't know if we've talked about this, but. I mean, more recently. Well, we have before, and it's like we've but, talked about, like, people have been at a party. Right. And but this I, is particularly with women, and, and they realize, wow, I need to go home, or I need to go out back somewhere and uh, be myself, because this is not a party drug. Right. But I, or a I, concert or but, something but like that. I think, though, I think there's a lot of people that get into this through that method, while there are idiots that just take things to take things, and they just want to escape reality in some form or another whether it's psilocybin or mdma or whatever their drug of choices there's two i think there's two ways to look at these things one of them is again like you mentioned a party drug or just something that has no sacred or specific association with it and then you have the other aspect of it where people now are you know whether it's plant medicine or meeting with shamans or doing sacred mushroom rituals or doing it on your own and having a special reverence for the the scenario i think that those are the two paths but I, what i'm saying is like when i was like 14 years old and we're first trying these substances um it was more of like an hallucinian mystery kind of aspect where i know it's going to do something weird i know there's more to life i want to see what more what there is more you know what what's going on let's see if we can peek behind the veil a little bit so there was well a lot of people say like the mushrooms find you like the first time they find you and so in a certain way i could believe they found you and but i think there's a third type of way of taking the mushroom and uh it goes back to Odysseus and what are called lotus eaters, people that just want to escape reality. Their life's so bad, whether it's with a bottle of alcohol or whether it's an opioid or fentanyl or methamphetamine, they want to just escape the horror of what they consider the horror of their life. They're mm -hmm. they're unhappy. And the thing I see about this, it'll bring joy into your life and the joy of finding out that you're living and your body's living and you're connected to all these other living things out there. And watching you this and everybody, that this is not something that you're going to smoke and enjoy, say, maybe every day like cannabis. I could see people relaxing in the evening with cannabis just to relax and mellow out from the day or take take a glass of wine. or Right. Uh, this is something that, involves the word ecstasy that came from the Eleusian memories, but it's also another word that came from there, agape, which means love feast. And 
that's what I, this is about being able to love yourself. Yeah, it's love is an action is what agape is. Right. It's like the biggest. Well, I think that word. Is, I think intention is a uh, is, is is what it's all about. Is when you go into something, have the intention, and uh, you'll get what you put in. Well, I guess this is the end of this right now. I'm going to go get a drink of water, and I'll be back for the Patreon. So let's. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to wrap it up. I'll plug your stuff for you. Check out Tom's book. Um, Sacred Mushroom Rituals, A Search for the Blood of Quetzalcoatl. I have the link down below. Um, and also, he has a Facebook group that you can check out, Tom Lane. What's what's the name of the Facebook group? Well, the Facebook group is pretty simple. It's, it's Sacred Mushroom Rituals and Ceremonies. Okay. And we also cover ayahuasca, peyote, even cannabis is his juice, and St. Pedro. And we look at the archaic and ancient ways, but... Sometimes I bring in things about that are more pertinent to today. Okay. And then at my website, solarwolf.org, mainly right now I just have a lot of your videos there. Uh, well, thank you. I've putting your videos there and one or two others that I've done. And, uh, of course, these are on YouTube too. And, and some of your videos I put on uh now, Facebook group site, Sacred Mushroom Rituals and Ceremonies, and everybody's welcome there. I don't uh, throw anybody out, off unless they start trying to sell a lot of stuff or get political yeah. or are not kind to people. And to me, the important thing about all of this is that you're going to be a kind person. And, you, it, you know, the mushroom creates a lot of empathy. Mm -hmm. It's really an empathogen a lot like uh, MDMA is, you know, you feel for other people and you realize you're connected to everybody else and we're all in this game together. Sure. And the only way to move through life is with love and to be able to understand that that's what's really healing the body. That's why the body will tell you if you have negative thoughts or unconscious thoughts that that's messing up your body or you're holding them rigid somewhere in your body and it will help you get rid of it and sometime maybe the next we'll talk about this ancient mesoamerican ceremony called the twine ceremony where a large group of people around a fire take mushrooms or peyote and they use it to get rid of things by throwing the twine into the fire right I think you mentioned it for like a, a minute or two before, but yeah, we can definitely do that next time we get you on. But uh, let's wrap it up here. You can go get a glass of water. I'll take us out here, and then we'll come back and do the Patreon. But uh, check us out. Subscribe to our channel. Hit the like button if you've not done it already. Um, you can help us uh, grow on um, by contributing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Mike and Maurice. We will be adding a... Uh, a video with Tom up on there for $2 a month. You'll get exclusive access and uh, also visit our website, Mike and Maurice mind escape.com. And we are on all social media platforms and all uh, audio platforms having to do with podcasting. So please check us Snap, out. Crackle pop baby. And that's it. And we will catch you guys next time. Stay safe out there. People. Peace. Peace. Welcome.
back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind.